We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And away we go. Episode 38 of the Al Galdi Podcast. It is Tuesday, April 13th, 2021. It is, if I may say, a proud of the boys kind of Tuesday. I'm proud of the boys. Yes. Thank you, Davey Martinez. Your Nationals, their five-game losing streak over thanks to a win at the St. Louis Cardinals. The Wizards. Yes, the Wizards. We're proud of them, too. Beating the NBA-leading Utah Jazz for the second time in less than a month, and this time doing it in Utah, where the Jazz had been 24-2 and this season. Amazing. Nationals win. Wizards win. Nice to have some wins to talk about. Only thing that would have made Monday Night better is if the Orioles had won. Uh, they did not, but they didn't lose either, and these days, that's a win if you're an O's fan. No Orioles game on Monday Night. Game one of the four-game series with the Seattle Mariners at Camden Yards, rained out, single admission doubleheader on Tuesday, beginning at 4.05 p.m. But lots to talk about on this installment of the Al Galdi podcast. I have a question that I'm going to pose to you shortly. Is the Washington football team now the most functional and stable team in the NFC East? I'm serious in asking that. I'm not joking in asking that. Did you see what came out on Monday about the Philadelphia Eagles? A major story on the extent to which infighting, paranoia, and politics have run rampant 
within the organization over the last few years. Sound familiar? It should. And so when you look at that with the Eagles, you look at where we are with the Dallas Cowboys and New York Giants. I do believe that you can now make the case that our team, the team with no name, the Washington football team, is the most functional and stable team in the NFC East. I know it sounds absurd, but think about it. We're going to get into it coming up next segment. The NHL's trade deadline was Monday afternoon at 3 p.m. Eastern. The Caps made multiple trades, including a whammy, one of the bigger trade deadline trades that the Caps have ever made, getting Anthony Mantha from the Detroit Red Wings for two forwards, Jacob Vrana and Richard Ponick, a 2021 first-round pick, and a 2022 second-round pick. You'd have thought Trey Lance would have been coming to the Caps for that price. Yes, thank you. A steep price paid by the Cavs, but they get back a top six forward, a guy with size in his mid-20s and under team control for three more seasons beyond this one. The Cavs have made an all-in win-now move. I've got a lot to say about that. I'll do that a little later on. Speaking of major acquisitions, the Hoyas with a major addition by the transfer market on Monday. I'll talk about that as well. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. I received the following email from the Washington football team on Monday. Head coach Rod Rivera and general manager Martin Mayhew will be available on Friday, April 16th at 11 a.m. via Zoom. So yes, Don Ron and GM MM will be speaking on Friday, a joint Zoom press conference as we get oh so close to the 2021 NFL Draft. Friday is April 16th. First round of the NFL Draft is Thursday night, April 29th. But, you know, I did find this interesting that the presser is going to be Ron and Martin, not say Ron and Marty Herney or Ron, Martin, and Marty. It's Ron and Martin. Remember the titles in the New Look front office. Martin Mayhew is the general manager. Marty Herney is the executive vice president of football slash player personnel. And we've wondered, or at least I've wondered, well, in the true organizational hierarchy, who is above who? Is Marty above Martin or is Martin above Marty? And Washington hasn't really said, you know, Washington has kind of framed this as, well, both guys report directly to Ron Rivera and they're, they're equals. But we all know that that's probably not true. Like they may have different responsibilities, but you would think at the end of the day, there is one guy who has a little more say so, a little more power, is thought of a little more highly by Ron than the other guy. Just you would think, you know, naturally speaking, the titles don't really tell you one way or the other. Again, Marty Herney is the executive vice president of football slash player personnel. Martin Mayhew is the general manager. It's been said that Marty Herney is more of the road guy. You know, he'll go to the various pro days and, you know, watch college football games to scout people. Mayhew was more of the office guy. Okay. That still doesn't really tell you though. Okay. Who has more say so than the other? Uh, so this pre-draft Zoom presser will be Ron and Martin Mayhew for whatever that's worth. Okay. And maybe that doesn't mean a ton, but I did find that, uh, at least semi-interesting with the Washington football team putting that out there on Monday via that email. Just something to think about, as is this, the Washington football team, dare I say it, now the most functional, stable, normal, non-toxic team of all of the teams in the NFC East. Think about it this way. Is the Washington football team now the least screwed up team in the NFC East? Because it's not a banner division. We get that. But of the four screw-ups, is our team the best of the screw-ups, the least screwed up of the screw-ups? 
All right, so if anyone ever tells you that it shouldn't take others feeling bad for you to feel good, tell that person that that's nonsense, okay? There ain't nothing wrong with reveling in the misfortune of others, especially when the others are your division rivals in the NFL. And it is with that as a life-guiding philosophy that I bring to you now what came out on Monday, a bombshell article from the Athletic Philadelphia on the culture of the Philadelphia Eagles. And yes, I did say culture. You know, the culture is actually damn good. No, the culture is not damn good. Not for the Eagles anyway, Brucey. Not for the Eagles. The headline of the article, and the headline says it all. Paranoia, mismanagement, and office politics. Inside the Eagles' downfall under Jeffrey Lurie, comma, Howie Roseman. The main players discussed in the article are Jeffrey Lurie, the Eagles chairman and chief executive officer, the owner, Howie Roseman, the Eagles executive vice president and general manager, and Doug Peterson, the Eagles former head coach. Remember, he got fired this past January 12th, this despite Peterson having won the Super Bowl just three seasons earlier, 2017 season, despite Peterson having gone 42-37-1 over his five seasons as Eagles head coach, and despite Peterson having had three consecutive winning seasons until going 4-11-1 and in 2020. The article did very much paint Peterson as a victim. So look, the article clearly was heavily sourced by Peterson and or those on his side. There's no doubt about that. But of course, that doesn't mean that what is in the article isn't true. Among the many notable items regarding Peterson in the piece, So the article paints a picture of Lurie as having been fixated on analytics. And you know where I stand on analytics, right? I can't get enough of them. But some of this stuff really was incredible. Quote, days earlier, the team overcame a 10-0 second quarter deficit to beat Aaron Rodgers and the Packers 34-27 and even its record at 2-2. The offensive key to the win was a steady dose of the running game that took advantage of Green Bay's defensive game plan. Apparently." That wasn't good enough. Lurie, who has long advocated the use of analytics, wanted to know why Peterson hadn't called more passing plays. The interrogation was the same after another win that season, this time in Buffalo on a day with 23 mile per hour wins. Peterson was ridiculed and criticized for every decision, one source told The Athletic. If you won by three, it wasn't enough. If you lost on a last second field goal, you're the worst coach in history, end quote. So how about that? At least according to the piece, the owner meddling with the coach. Jeez, doesn't that sound familiar? First off, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Yes, thank you, Danny. I appreciate that. The article said that Doug Peterson entered the 2017 season in which the Eagles won the Super Bowl in major trouble. Quote, in the days leading up to the 2017 opener, word of a three-hour meeting between Lurie and defensive coordinator Jim Schwartz spread throughout the organization. The specifics were unknown, but multiple sources said there was a feeling around the team that Lurie was vetting an in-house replacement for Peterson in the event the Eagles got off to a slow start. After a week one victory in Washington, the team celebrated by dumping Gatorade on Peterson's head, end quote. So obviously, the players knew what was going on here. The article quoted one anonymous source as having said the following, quote, the fact that Doug had the success he did with all the S going on in the building, sometimes I look at our Super Bowl run and I'm like, holy cow, 
I don't know how we did it, end quote. The article also says that Doug Peterson fought back. Quote, Alec Hallaby runs the Eagles analytics department. He's also friends with Jeffrey Lurie's son, Julian Lurie. During the 2017 season, Peterson and Hallaby's relationship soured to the point that Peterson berated Hallaby within earshot of the rest of the office, end quote. And that's just the Doug Peterson stuff. Then there was the Howie Roseman stuff. The article very much portrays Roseman as this complicated guy who was also a big-time self-preservationist. The article says that Roseman had problems with interpersonal skills that he had tried to improve, but also had reverted to as things with the Eagles soured. Quote, at the heart of Roseman's weaknesses is an obsession with the way he's portrayed. Rather than foster collaborative group conversation, he prefers to discuss most decisions in separate one-on-one conversations with stakeholders throughout the building, end quote. The article quoted an anonymous source as saying, quote, building that coalition and leading that group to work together in a constructive way is not Howie's strength. In fact, it's one of his weaknesses, end quote. How about this regarding Roseman? I love this part. Quote, Roseman is known to keep his own draft board and scouts who spend months on the road evaluating players can feel marginalized when the rankings they've helped assemble are not followed. One source described Roseman pushing an assistant coach to give playing time to a recent draft pick while the assistant balanced conflicting recommendations from senior members of the coaching staff. Lurie, who regularly attends practice, inquired about a reserve's playing time. There's been confusion about why certain players were active and others were inactive on game days with speculation centered on Roseman's outsized influence on the game day roster, end quote. The article said that multiple sources said that, quote, Roseman made himself essential to Lurie. This is a survivor, said one source about Roseman. This is someone who understands how to stay close with the most important person in the building, end quote. And yes, I did say close. It means you're close. Yes, thank you, Brucey. I mean, does this stuff not reek of all of the things we have talked about and dealt with as Washington football team fans for years, where Lurie is Snyder? and Roseman is Brucey, and Peterson is Jay. And it's like, it's the same dynamic that we've become so accustomed to here in these parts. You see, it's not just here with the Washington football team that this kind of garbage has gone on. It really was something, if you haven't read the article, I would highly encourage you to check it out. Because again, it is so much fun when it's happening to other people and other teams, just not you and your teams, right? Then it's a problem. When it's other people, it's highly entertaining. So I was thinking about this. I mean, the Eagles really have been a mess here. And it doesn't mean that the Eagles are doomed, okay? I mean, maybe they get on track now, okay? They do have their new head coach, this guy, Nick Sirianni, who had been the Indianapolis Colts offensive coordinator. But, you know, speaking of that, consider this. So when the Eagles hired Sirianni as their head coach back in January, the belief very much was that the hiring was all about fixing Carson Wentz. Sirianni had been the right-hand man for Colts head coach Frank Reich, who was the Eagles offensive coordinator in 2016 and 2017, which were Wentz's first two seasons, right? Carson Wentz had that hideous 2020 regular season in which, never forget, he led the NFL in sacks taken at 50 and tied for an NFL worst 15 interceptions despite playing in just 12 games. Like, he did all that over just 12 games, over just three-fourths of the 16-game regular season. But anyway, Sirianni gets hired. People say, all right, this guy's here to fix Carson Wentz. This is all about Carson Wentz. The Eagles chose Carson Wentz over Doug Peterson. 
And sure enough, what happens, right? The Eagles trade away Carson Wentz in a deal that gets agreed to about a month later. So I don't know. Did the plan change? Or was this always the idea that, yeah, we're going to hire Sirianni, but this ain't about Carson Wentz? We'll see. But, you know, you just wonder, like, is everyone on the same page? Does the plan keep changing when it comes to the Philadelphia Eagles? So take a step back from a moment, if you would, okay? You have this Eagles mess that was detailed at length by the Athletic Philadelphia in this piece that came out on Monday. You have the New York Giants. And yes, the Giants have made a bunch of moves this offseason and perhaps will be much improved in 2021. You know, maybe all these moves work out, but we all know as Washington fans how folly it is to just assume that the team that does the most or spends the most in an offseason will be the best. And there's also this with the Giants, and this to me never gets enough attention. So the Giants have had four consecutive double-digit loss seasons, have had six double-digit loss seasons in seven years. For all of the ripping and the mocking of our team, our team's last seven seasons blow away the Giants' last seven seasons. Like, at least our team over the last seven years has won two NFC East titles. At least our team over the last seven years has multiple winning seasons. At least our team over the last seven years has just two double-digit loss seasons. The Giants, again, have six double-digit loss seasons over the last seven years. I'm not here to tell you we should be hanging a banner for anything our team has accomplished over the last seven seasons, but there's no debate. The last seven seasons have gone much better for Washington than those seasons have gone for the Giants, okay? And then, of course, there is the other team in the NFC East, the Dallas Cowboys. How about them, Cowboys? Yes, thank you, Jimmy. So, I know, the Cowboys have all this talent, all right? They signed Dak Prescott, finally, to a long-term contract this offseason. Four years, $160 million. If you want to make the case that the Cowboys are the best team in the division, you can make that case. You have plenty of items of evidence on your side. But I have just as much ammunition on my side to make the case that the Cowboys, again, are going to flop. You know, the Cowboys now have so many big money players on their team. The Cowboys have a number of guys with average annual values, AAVs, in the double digits millions of dollars. Dak Prescott, $40 million per year. Amari Cooper, $20 million per year. Ezekiel Elliott, $15 million per year. Yeah, the Cowboys are paying a running back $15 million per year. He couldn't even hold on to the football this past season. I know the Cowboys did hire a new defensive coordinator in Dan Quinn, and I do believe that's an upgrade over Captain Vanilla Ice Cream Mike Nolan, but Dan Quinn also is coming off a stint as Atlanta Falcons head coach 2015 through 2020, during which the Falcons routinely had bad defenses. Like for all of the good that Dan Quinn did as Seattle Seahawks defensive coordinator, his Falcons defenses were not impressive, okay? And his Falcons defenses at times were wretched. So the notion that Dan Quinn is going to come to Dallas and just wave a magic wand and all of a sudden Dallas is going to have some dominant defense, maybe, okay, maybe, but I'm not counting on that, nor should you. So that brings me to this. Is it possible? Okay, don't laugh when I say this. Is it possible that the Washington football team is in fact the most functional, stable of the four teams in the NFC East right now? You've got the Eagles with their incredible infighting. You've got the Giants with their recent track record of Drek. Again, six double-digit loss seasons over the last seven years. That never gets talked about. People still talk about the Giants like, you know, they just won the Super Bowl. Like, it's 2007, 2011. It's not. 
Th- th- those things happened years ago at this point. And then you've got the Cowboys, forever overhyped, now with a ton of big money guys on the team and with major questions on defense. You know, it's funny when you go back to the coaching hirings of last offseason. Washington hires Ron Rivera as head coach, Jack Del Rio as defensive coordinator. Cowboys hire Mike McCarthy as head coach, Mike Nolan as defensive coordinator. I would say, at least for now, our team got the better of Dallas in that hiring cycle. But yeah, I mean, a lot of this does have to do with just the competition around you, okay? It's not like the other three teams in your division are the Kansas City Chiefs, the Baltimore Ravens, and the Green Bay Packers. But the Washington football team, dare I say, the most functional, stable organization in the NFC East. And when's the last time you could have made that case? You know, the culture is actually damn good. Exactly, Brucey. All right, so the Capitals play on Tuesday night. They host the Philadelphia Flyers at 7. There will not be, by the way, fans in attendance at this game. The Caps on Monday announcing that the game against the New York Islanders on Tuesday night, April 27th, will be the first game for which fans will be back at Capital One Arena in terms of a Caps game. This is, by the way, part of why D.C. taking so long to allow for fans at Capital One Arena, ticked off the Caps. It's not like DC gives the green light and the very next game you start having fans. There is a ton that has to be done in terms of setting up the proper safety measures, figuring out a ticket policy, etc. I mean, understand, the Caps' final home game of the regular season is May 11th. The Caps are going to end up having a mere six home games with fans this regular season. Six! Like, you can understand why Ted Leonsis, why billionaire Ted was so upset with D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser. So thank you, Emperor Bowser, for that. Six home games for the Caps this regular season with fans. But we do know the Caps, right, they will be making the Stanley Cup playoffs. Haven't clinched anything yet, but you know that that's coming. Caps, though, are in a dogfight in the East Division. And so the Caps on Monday, what was NHL trade deadline day, making two trades, including a whopper, the Capitals trading for forward Anthony Mantha from the Detroit Red Wings. Caps giving up forward Jacob Vrana and Richard Ponick, a 2021 first round pick and a 2022 second round pick. So a one, a two, Vrana and Ponick for Anthony Mantha. This is what you call going all in. This is what you call going for it. And I have to applaud the Caps for this. You know, one of the things I've said about the Caps consistently is it's great they got the Stanley Cup in 2018. But the truth is, in order for the Rock the Red, Alex Ovechkin, Nicholas Backstrom era to be remembered the way we all want it to be remembered, you need another run here. You need something else here, okay? You need not necessarily another cup, although boy, would that be nice, but you need to get out of the second round in one of these other postseason appearances. I mean, that's the thing with the Caps. It's not just one Stanley Cup during the Alex Ovechkin era, and, and, you know, it's one Stanley Cup championship in the history of the franchise, but it's that the team hasn't made it past the second round in any other postseason during the Alex Ovechkin era. Heck, the Capitals in their history have only made it past the second round three times. That's it. 1990 got to the Eastern Conference Final. 1998 got to the Stanley Cup Final. And 2018 won the Stanley Cup. So there is, to me, an urgency with the Caps. Ovechkin is still very good, but he's obviously not getting younger. Same thing for Backstrom. You've got other veterans on the team, people like John Carlson, TJ Oshie. It's not that the Caps are ancient, but they're not going to be great forever. Like, every year the Caps make the postseason, that's not going to happen in perpetuity. Like, at some point, the Rock the Red era is going to come to an end. At some point, the Capitals, every year, making the Stanley Cup playoffs 
is going to stop. And so you'd like to have more to show for all of this than just that one Stanley Cup championship and just that one postseason in which you got past the second round. So I love the urgency that the Caps demonstrated on Monday in making the big swing and making this trade for Mantha. Now, there's a lot more to this than just, hey, you're going for it in the 2021 Stanley Cup playoffs. Uh, Anthony Mantha is not some like aging veteran who you're renting and then he's going to become a free agent this coming offseason. Anthony Mantha is only in his age 26 season. Anthony Mantha is under contract through the 2023-2024 season. And Anthony Mantha has an average annual value of $5.7 million. It's not an unreasonable deal that he's playing under. He's young, mid-20s, and he's under team control for years to come. So the Caps got themselves a guy for not just the rest of this season, but for multiple seasons to come. Anthony Mantha gives the Caps more size. He's listed as being 6'5", 234 pounds. Anthony Mantha comes to the Caps with, yes, decent scoring numbers, but here's the thing that really stands out. Excellent puck possession numbers. So if you want to just look at kind of the traditional scoring stats, Mantha this season for the Red Wings, 11 goals, 10 assists, over 42 games. Okay, fine, nothing special. Mantha over his previous four seasons, has never had fewer than 36 points, but he's also never had more than 48 points. So he's been, you know, from a point production standpoint, solid, but certainly not anything special. But Mantha, at the time of this trade, you look back over his last five NHL seasons, what are essentially his five true NHL seasons. So 2015-2016, up until where we are now in the 2020-2021 season, okay? Among all NHL players, during that span, with at least 200 games played, Anthony Mantha is number two in the NHL as of games through Sunday in regular season relative five-on-five shot attempt percentage at 6.6. Okay, you say, what are you talking about, Goldie? What does that mean? Okay, so we talk all the time on this podcast about shot attempt percentage, specifically five-on-five shot attempt percentage, with the idea being when you're on the ice, five-on-five, so you strip out power play and penalty kill. Is the team controlling the puck? Is the team getting the majority of the shot attempts? And shot attempts aren't just shots on goal. Shot attempts are also missed shots and block shots. So basically the idea is if you're getting more shot attempts in the opposition, then you're controlling the puck more. Is that happening with that particular player on the ice? So five on five shot attempt percentage for a player simply is when that guy is on the ice in five on five situations is the majority of the shot attempts being administered in favor of the team or not in favor of the team? What percentage of the shot attempts are in favor of the team with that guy on the ice in five on five predicaments? Well, relative five on five shot attempt percentage is simply the percentage point difference between what's the deal when the guy is on the ice for you versus what's the deal when the guy is not on the ice for you. Anthony Mantha, last five seasons, as of games through Sunday, number two among all players who've each played at least 200 games in relative five-on-five shot attempt percentage in the regular season. Again, 6.6. So what that simply means is that the Red Wings over Mantha's five true NHL seasons had an overall five-on-five shot attempt percentage with Mantha on the ice that was 6.6 percentage points better than with him off the ice. That's significant. One more time, that's number two in the NHL during that span. Only Patrice Bergeron of the Boston Bruins had a better regular season relative five-on-five shot attempt percentage 
in that time frame. So good things were happening to Detroit relative to the rest of the team with Mantha on the ice five on five versus Mantha off the ice five on five. And we've spoken about this so much on the podcast. The Capitals, yes, have a very good record. The Capitals, yes, have have won a lot so far this year. But the puck possession numbers for the Capitals at times have been frightening. And the Caps game in and game out haven't always had great process stats. And while at the end of the day, all that matters is did you win or lose, evaluating an NHL team isn't as simple as, well, did it win or lose? Heck, we talked about this on Monday's podcast. So the Capitals had that great 8-1 win at the Boston Bruins on Sunday night. Even in that game, the Capitals lost the puck possession battle. The Caps for that game, per natural stat trick, had just 31 5-on-5 shot attempts to the Bruins' 47. You were minus 16 in the puck possession battle on Sunday night, and yet you won 8-1. Now, the 8-1 win is what matters the most, right? Far more than the puck possession stuff. But you shouldn't just disregard the puck possession stuff. And I think clearly what this acquisition says is Senior Vice President and General Manager Brian McClellan, he is not just ignoring the puck possession stuff. Anthony Mantha is going to help. Here's what McClellan had to say in a Zoom press conference on Monday. Yeah, I mean, we really liked uh, Anthony for quite a while now. Uh, you know, I like a lot of the attributes, the, you know, the size, the skill, uh, the shot, the scoring ability. Uh, he's a really good skater for his size. Um, you know, I think it's, uh, it's a player that we've liked and talked about a lot in our room and, uh, we had a chance to acquire him. So, uh, we went out and got him. And some more from McClellan on Mantha, specifically the size and potential physicality. Yeah, I think the physicality he brings is uh, strength on the puck. I mean, he's a long player. He uses a long stick. Uh, he has a good shot. I think the size factor, um, more translates to skill than uh, than a physical running over people, and I think he had that in him. Uh, he's a big, strong guy that uh, that plays a big game, that can play a big game, and, and uses his size and strength and length to his advantage. Um, and it, you know, I think it's an effective style on the ice. Now, you did hear McClellan in that cut I just played for you say that Mantha plays a big game, and then McClellan quickly corrected himself and said, "Can play a big game." There are two concerns with Anthony Mantha that if you're a Caps fan, you want to be aware of. So number one is this. He has underperformed at least somewhat in his career. Understand the Red Wings this past November signed Mantha to a four-year contract extension, and yet they end up trading him away the following April. Six months after extending the guy, you deal away the guy. Mantha was an inconsistent player for the Red Wings. His size and skill dictated that he be noticed constantly, but he would disappear at times. And Mantha, to his credit, would own up to that. Mantha himself on multiple occasions has called his own play not good enough. So that's good, but you know, you don't want that inconsistency to continue here. I mean, the Caps have Mantha under control, like I said, for multiple seasons to come. They want to see the best of Anthony Mantha. He's too gifted to not be better, to not be a consistent force on the ice. I mean, he profiles very clearly as a top six forward. He needs to earn that and he needs to thrive in that role. You know, Detroit really has fallen off in recent seasons. The Red Wings are about to miss the Stanley Cup playoffs for a fifth consecutive season. This for a franchise that made the Stanley Cup playoffs every year from 1990-91 
through 2015-2016. I mean, for the longest time, the most automatic thing maybe in all of sports was the Detroit Red Wings making the Stanley Cup playoffs. The franchise has completely fallen off in recent years. So you wonder, right? Anthony Mantha going from that situation to this situation, Capitals, Ovechkin, Backstrom, win now approach, Stanley Cup champions just a few seasons ago. You hope that that motivates Anthony Mantha, but understand he does seem to be a guy who needs motivating. He has underperformed at various points in his career. The other thing with Anthony Mantha to be mindful of is he does have an injury history. Uh, Mantha in the 2018-2019 season missed a month due to a hand injury. Mantha in the 2019-2020 season missed eight games due to a lower body injury and then missed 20 games due to a rib injury and punctured lung. Now, as for who the Caps gave up for Mantha, the guy who stands out the most clearly is Jacob Vrana. And thus endeth the Jacob Vrana saga, the Jake the Snake saga with the Caps. The Caps took Vrana with the number 13 overall pick in the 2014 NHL draft. He had blossomed at least somewhat over the previous two seasons here. And really, all things considered, wasn't having that terrible of a season this year for the Caps. You know, Vrana exits the Caps this season number two on the team in even strength goals at 11. You know, only Alex Ovechkin has more even strength goals for the Caps this season than Vrana has. For all this talk about how much of a disappointment Vrana has been, understand that second on the Caps was Vrana in even strength goals this year. But as we have discussed, Jacob Vrana had recently been a healthy scratch by head coach Peter Laviolette over two consecutive games. Vrana did score in that 4-3 Caps win at the Buffalo Sabres this past Friday night, but that score snapped a personal 13-game goalless drought for Vrana. And, you know, you just looked at Vrana as a guy who was on the outs. Laviolette was not a fan of Jacob Vrana. really got that sense. Laviolette did not feel like Vrana fit what Laviolette wanted to do from a system standpoint. And I just hope, I really hope, that this isn't one of these deals here where Vrana leaves, thrives elsewhere, and Anthony Mantha ends up being this inconsistent guy who never lives up to his billing, you know? Because Jacob Vrana is very skilled, and we have seen him, especially at times over the previous two seasons, look really good. Jacob Vrana and his whole situation actually reminds me a lot of what happened with Andre Burakovsky. Do you remember Burakovsky? I deemed him the king of Corsi because he was so good when it came to the five-on-five shot attempt percentage stuff. But Andre Burakovsky was another guy, enigmatic, mercurial, talented, could catch fire, but could also disappear. And the Caps ultimately traded Burakovsky to the Colorado Avalanche in June 2019. And while no Burakovsky can't say he's like set the world on fire for the Avs, he has done pretty well. Like it's not like he's uh, he's been bad. And especially last season, Burakovsky put up career best totals in goals, assists, and points. So you just would hate to see, like, I hate to root against anybody, but I'm going to be honest with you here. If Rana goes elsewhere and thrives, you know, if Rana kills it now moving forward for Detroit, that's going to be something that's going to stick with us as Capitals fans, no doubt. And you're going to have to ask the question of why didn't LaViolette adjust more to Vrana as opposed to demanding that Vrana adjust to LaViolette. The other player who the Caps gave up in the deal, Ponick, uh, Caps signed Ponick as an unrestricted free agent, July 2019, gave him a four-year, $11 million deal but Ponick had fallen out of favor with LaViolette. The Caps on April 8th announced the loaning of Ponick to the taxi squad. He had been on waivers and cleared waivers. The Caps waived Richard Ponick uh, over the last few weeks here. So two guys who were in LaViolette's doghouse to varying degrees. You also, of course, give up a first-round pick and a second-round pick for Anthony Mantha. This is a big swing, like I said. But getting back to Vrana, what went wrong here? Again, this is a guy, number 13 overall pick, in the 2014 NHL draft. This was McClellan on Monday on Verona.
Yeah, I mean, he's a good young player. You know, uh, we won a cup. He's a part of it. Uh, he's, he's a nice person. Uh, highly skilled, great speed. Um, you know, and I think, uh, part of it was, you know, I think Jacob's a little frustrated with, you know, where he's at here within the organization. Probably wants a little more ice time, wants more responsibility. And there was a tug and war between, you know, coaching staff and staffs that have had him and his, and the way he was playing. So I, I think we had a frustrated player. Um, and so we try to, to move on from that. Yeah, McClellan did also then say that Vrana's contract situation had something to do with this as well. Jacob Vrana is said to be a restricted free agent this coming offseason. The Capitals are up against it and have been up against it for a while now when it comes to the salary cap. So with Anthony Mantha, you get some cost certainty with him again under team control through the 2023-2024 season. Vrana, because he does have halfway decent numbers, probably is set to get a nice pay raise uh, in the coming NHL season. McClellan got asked later in the Zoom presser about Vrana again. Here was what McClellan had to say. You know, I, I see a frustrated player. Um, you know, and I, you know, I mean, I don't, maybe he is or maybe he isn't, but the body language is frustrated. And, and I, uh, you know, I think we gave it some time and to see if we could work it out and we moved on from it. Yeah, I thought that was a particularly telling answer from Brian McClellan. He and Peter Laviolette did not like the body language from Jacob Vrana. Felt like Vrana had checked out, and so McClellan and Laviolette decide to move on. And you just hope the Caps are proven right on this one. I think with McClellan, to be fair, there is a benefit of the doubt that he gets because he has made so many good moves during his time as Caps Senior VP and GM. I mean, look, the signing of Connor Sheary right now, this past offseason, looks like a stroke of brilliance with how productive Sheary has been for the Caps so far this year. And so you look at the state of this ultra-competitive East Division. Caps and New York Islanders tied atop the division at 58 points. Pittsburgh Penguins third at 56 points. Boston Bruins fourth at 48 points. All kinds of moves being made in this East Division over the last few days. Yeah, what the Caps did on Monday in getting Anthony Mantha. The Bruins on Monday acquiring left-wing Taylor Hall from the Buffalo Sabres. The Penguins on Monday acquiring veteran forward Jeff Carter from the Los Angeles Kings. The Islanders last week acquired forward Kyle Palmieri from the New Jersey Devils. It became an arms race in the East Division. And the Caps, whether because they felt pressure from the outside or whether because they felt internal pressure, made the big move on Monday, getting Anthony Mantha. That was not the only trade that the Caps made on Monday. They also made a lesser trade, acquired forward Michael Roffel from the Philadelphia Flyers for a 2021 fifth round pick that the Caps had previously acquired from the Las Vegas Golden Knights, and the Flyers do retain 25% of Raffle's salary. Now, this is a rental of an older player. Raffle is in his age 32 season, is set to become an unrestricted free agent after this season. Raffle has been neither a significant point producer for the Flyers nor a major driver of play, i.e. does not have overly impressive five-on-five shot attempt percentage stats. Uh, Raffle for the Flyers this season has been a fourth-line player with a time-on-ice per game average of 12 minutes, 41 seconds. McClellan on Monday on what the Caps are getting in Raffle. I think Raffle gives us depth and versatility on the bottom six. Um, I think an overall balance of our team is uh, looks better, in my opinion. You know, one of our goals coming in the deadline was to finding a versatile forward that could play center. We needed it. Uh, we were a little concerned. I mean, we like our center ice position, but... We wanted a guy that could play there. We needed it. 
know, in a depth situation, we had an injury or somebody was out for a few games, and I think he he fits the bill there. He can play up and down a lineup. He's a good winger. He's big and strong and skate. I, I think he's a very useful player. Interesting, the center thing coming up. Remember, the Caps at various points this season have had to put TJ Oshie at center due to various injuries slash absences at the center position. So, yeah, I guess the Caps have kind of learned a lesson of you can't have too many centers with the way things have gone for the Caps at center at various points this year. So, Caps make the two moves on Monday. Remember, they also made a trade on Sunday, dealt defenseman Jonas Siegenthaler to the New Jersey Devils for the Arizona Coyotes' third-round pick in the 2021 NHL draft. So you have seen the jettisoning of multiple young players, once thought to be pieces for the future, and now Gonzo from the organization over the last few days in Siegenthaler and Vrana. What the Caps did not do, though, prior to the NHL trade deadline was acquire a goaltender. And I brought this up on Monday's podcast, the news on Sunday from King Henry, Henrik Lundqvist, him tweeting that a checkup the previous week had shown some inflammation around his heart and that he needed, quote, a few months more of rest and steady recovery, end quote. Not that people were counting on Henrik Lundqvist playing for the Caps this year, but, you know, you never know until you know. And Lundqvist, you know, high-level athlete, motivated athlete, you wondered if maybe there was an outside chance that he plays this season. Remember, the Caps signed Lundqvist October 9th to a one-year, $1.5 million contract off the final season of a seven-year deal with the New York Rangers having been bought out. And then came the stunning announcement on December 17th that he would be stepping away from hockey due to a heart condition. So the Caps, it appears, are going to ride the rookies. Ilya Samsonov, Vitek Vanacek, it's been a two-headed goaltending monster for the Caps this season. It's obviously been good enough for the Caps to be tied for first in the East Division this deep into the regular season, but we all know how it can go with these goaltenders. All it takes is for a guy to get cold, a guy to lose confidence, especially in a setting like the Stanley Cup playoffs, and you can be ruined. Because if you don't have quality goaltending come the postseason, you really don't have a chance. And while Samsonov and Vanacek at times have looked great, each at times also has looked very pedestrian. McClellan on Monday on where the Caps are at at goaltender. Yeah, I think we looked at it. Um, you know, for I think both of our guys have played well and are progressing. I think, you know, Vitek's been pretty solid. Uh, Samsonov's improving and... And, and coming along, so it, it's tough to br- to bring in a guy and throw him in front of him. And, and you know, we have Anderson as the as on the taxi squad, and we have Copley in uh, in Hershey. So I think we feel confident about our goaltending depth and the progress our two young guys are making right now. Going to be so interesting to see how this goaltending situation for the Caps evolves as the rest of the regular season plays out. These are obviously meaningful games with the Caps in this tight battle. In the East Division, you've got the two rookies. Peter Laviolette essentially has been alternating, you know, Samsonov one game, Vanacek the next game. Although, interestingly, Vanacek did start both games for the Caps over the weekend. The 4-3 win at the Buffalo Sabres on Friday night and the 8-1 win at the Boston Bruins on Sunday night. Does either Samsonov or Vanacek grab the number one goaltending job and squeeze it by the throat over the course of the rest of the regular season, or does it continue to be this two-headed approach? And if so, what happens come the Stanley Cup playoffs? Does Laviolette settle on one and try to ride that guy, or does Laviolette continue to do this uh, timeshare between the pipes for the Capitals come the postseason? We shall see. But the Caps make the big move on Monday. I'm happy to see it. You go all in when you have a veteran-laden team. You When you're in win-now mode, you know, in sports, to me, you're either in or you're out. The Caps, with that acquisition of Anthony Mantha, very clearly are in 
for this season. And like I said, the good news with Mantha is he's not some aging one-year rental. You got Mantha for years to come, and hopefully you get the best version of Anthony Mantha. Well, as I said at the top of the show, it is a Proud of the Boys Tuesday on the Al Galdi podcast. And so, Davey Martinez, give it to me. I'm proud of the boys. There you go, Davey. The Nationals' five-game losing streak is no more. A 5-2 win at the St. Louis Cardinals on Monday night in Game 1 of a three-game series. As finally, mercifully, the Nats are back to being essentially at full strength. Three more players for the Nationals activated off the 10-day injured list on Monday. Three more guys who'd been out to begin the season due to COVID-19 protocols. First baseman Josh Bell, infielder Josh Harrison, and left fielder Kyle Schwarber. So these moves leave lefty starter John Lester as the only player still technically out, but even he has been cleared via the COVID-19 protocols. He just needs to build his arm back up. So when he'll actually pitch, we do not know. But everyone has been cleared at this point for the Nats. The other thing on the COVID-19 front from the Nats on Monday was Davey Martinez in a pregame Zoom presser revealing that, quote, the majority, end quote, of the Nats players and staff were vaccinated on Monday via the one-dose Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And that's notable on multiple levels, including this. MLB and the MLB Players Association have agreed to relax certain health and safety protocols once a team reaches an 85% threshold of having been vaccinated. All right. So the way it works is you have this operations manual with all these different protocols for this year. If you get full vaccination for 85% of what are called your tier one individuals and tier one individuals include players, coaches, trainers, some front office members and other staffers, you can relax on some of these protocols. Now, have the Nats reached 85%? We don't know. I don't know that we are going to know, but that's worth noting here that the Nats got a bunch of guys vaccinated on Monday. So good news there. Good to see the likes of Bell and Harrison and Schwarber in that Nationals lineup. And what you ended up seeing in this 5-2 win at the Cardinals on Monday night was what the Nats are supposed to be. Like this was the batting order that Davey Martinez envisioned going into this season. You know, Victor Robles, Trey Turner, Juan Soto, Josh Bell, Kyle Schwarber, Starling Castro, like that was supposed to be the top six in the lineup. And finally, you're able to get to this point in game seven of the season. You also were able to play out your bullpen the way I think Davey wants to do it, where Tanner Rainey worked the seventh, Daniel Hudson worked the eighth, and Brad Hand worked the ninth. But going back to the position players, it was so good to see these guys out there. And they all contributed in terms of the newcomers. Josh Bell was a starting first baseman at number four batter. He had a single and two walks. He had a six-pitch full count walk in the Nats two-run six, despite having been down in the count at 1.12. Had a leadoff six-pitch full count walk in the Nats one-run eighth and had a two-out first-pitch single in the top of the ninth. There also was this from Josh Bell, and this cracked me up. Bell, before the game said, this is awesome, he couldn't watch live Nationals games while he was out because he was blacked out from streaming. Yes, even Josh Bell has issues with Masson. I love it. I love it. The song that you can never not hear, the Masson theme. But even Josh Bell said, no, I couldn't watch my team live because I was blacked out from the streaming. Great job, Masson. Anyway, Josh Bell did a really nice job on Monday night. Kyle Schwarber delivered on Monday night. Uh, he had himself a double and a single, had an RBI double to right center in the Nats two-run six inning, and had a first-pitch single 
in the Nats' one-run eighth. Now, there was sort of a caveat to that because Schwarber got thrown out at home for the third out and trying to tag up on a Ryan Zimmerman pinch flyout to center fielder Dylan Carson in shallow center field. I don't get what the thinking was here, all right? And I, I blame more the third base coach, Bob Senley Henley, as he's known, but that was not some deep flyout by Zim. That was to shallow center. Carson makes a very good throw. Schwarber, who, you know, is not exactly Justin Fields in terms of of the 40 time, uh, gets gunned down at home plate. And that really was a killer because the Nats ended up scoring just one run in an eighth inning. They began with a walk in three singles. I mean, that inning had, you know, three spot, four spot, five spot written all over it. Instead, you get just the one run, but Schwarber did have a double and a single. Harrison was the starting second baseman, the number seven batter. He went one for four with a single, had the single in the top of the eighth inning. And what, of course, this does, having Bell, Schwarber, and Harrison in there is your lineup gets lengthened. So someone like Starling Castro, who's your starting third baseman, he's your number six batter now. You know, like that's more like it when it comes to Castro. And sure enough, he came through on Monday night, one for three with two runs batted in, had a first pitch RBI sack fly, in the Nats, two run six, had an RBI single to left field on a one-two pitch in the top of the eighth inning. You know, the Nats put up five runs on Monday night off having been shut out in two of the previous three games over the course of that three-game sweep at the Los Angeles Dodgers over the weekend. Also put up the five runs on Monday night, despite the second best hitter on the Nats, Trey Turner, going 0 for 5 with two strikeouts. You know, it, it, I mean, for, especially last season, right? It was Juan Soto, Trey Turner, and then close your eyes in so many ways with the Nats offense. Here you were Monday night, Trey Turner 0 for 5 with a couple of strikeouts, and you're still able to put up five runs. Juan Soto was terrific on Monday night, right? In that number three spot, starting right fielder, Soto ends up reaching base four times, three singles into walk. He had a one-out first pitch RBI single to right field in the top of the first, a two-out five-pitch walk in the top of the third, a leadoff single in the Nats, two runs six, and a two-out single in the top of the ninth. And I mentioned the ribby single for Soto in that top of the first inning. Victor Robles, how about the job he did to begin the game? Now, Victor only went one of five with three strikeouts, so it was not a banner night for Victor Robles as the number one batter. But Robles, that one hit was a big one, a first-pitch leadoff opposite field triple to right center in the Nats one run first. We talked on Monday's podcast that the Nats did have 30 hits over the course of the three-game sweep at the Dodgers, but 27 of the 30 hits were singles. And that's hit for like no power in that series, save for two homers by Juan Soto. Robles, right from the get-go in this game on Monday night, right? Your starting center fielder, your leadoff man, your tone setter lines an opposite field triple to right center, like a perfect way to begin the game. And then Soto has himself a first pitch ribby single. So like five minutes into the ball game, Nats are up one nothing. Love seeing something like that. And even got contributions deeper into the game, deeper into the lineup. Jan Gomes, your starting catcher, number eight batter, two of four with a couple of singles, two leadoff singles. In fact, a first pitch leadoff single in the top of the third, a leadoff single on an 0-2 pitch in the top of the fifth. And Andrew Stevenson, you know, you talk about lengthening the lineup, deepening your team. Andrew Stevenson had been playing a whole lot, comes off the bench on Monday night. And what does he do? Pinch leadoff homer to right field in the top of the seventh for a 4-2 Nats lead. So loved seeing what we saw from this Nationals lineup. That was more like it. That's what it's supposed to be when you have your full complement of players in front of you. Now, when it came to the Nats pitching on Monday night, guess who came through? I mean, it's all relative with this guy, but Eric Fetty had himself a really nice outing, all things considered. You know, you can always tweet me at Al Galdi. My man Edge tweeted me. Edge wrote me, he said, will my man, Al Galdi, show Fetty a little love for a decent, not great start? 
Yes, Edge. I shall show Fetty love right now. Eric Fetty on Monday night was solid. One run, four and two-thirds innings, five strikeouts versus just two hits, both of which were singles, and two walks through 77 pitches, 45 of which were strikes. And Fetty, as a batter, drew a five-pitch walk in the top of the third inning. I mean, you take this and you run with this if you're the Nationals, this outing by Eric Fetty. Remember, he got shellacked in his season debut. That 7-6 loss to the Atlanta Braves at Nationals Park in game one of the doubleheader sweep last Wednesday afternoon. Fetty gave up six runs, five earned in one and two-thirds innings. Eric Fetty on Monday night was so much better. Gave up a run in the bottom of the third, but the run came on a leadoff bunt single by Matt Carpenter, on which Fetty, by the way, did make a bad throw to first base to beat the shift, and then a two-out RBI single by Tommy Edmond. Okay, you give up a run on two singles, one of which is a bunt single. Fetty threw a perfect inning, during which he struck out Nolan Arenado looking on five pitches for the third out. Fetty threw a perfect second inning, in which he struck out the side. Yadier Molina, Dylan Carson, Paul DeYoung, Fetty began a perfect fourth inning by striking out Arenado on three pitches. Fetty owned Nolan Arenado in this game on Monday night. Love seeing this. I mean, you got to think that Fetty's confidence was shaken, not just by the bad outing in that game one loss to the Atlanta Braves in a doubleheader last Wednesday. But look, I mean, Eric Fetty, a first-round pick who has yet to really find his footing at the major league level. He is you know, someone who's been jerked between starting and relieving. And, you know, it just doesn't look like it's really happening for Fetty as a major league pitcher. So to see him do as he did on Monday night, really like seeing that. And then with the Nats bullpen, ultimately Davey calls upon four Nats relievers. They combined to allow one run in four and a third innings on six strikeouts versus four hits and a walk. Uh, the boo-boo came from Kyle Finnegan, who gave up a run in one and a third innings. Did do a good job of getting out of the jam in the fifth inning, in which he relieved Eric Fetty. But Finnegan does give up a two-out solo homer to Yadier Molina to right center in the bottom of the six, despite having had him down to the count at 1.12. So that was disappointing. But otherwise, bullpen was good. Tanner Rainey tossed a scoreless seventh. Uh, did get into a bit of trouble. Gave him a first-pitch leadoff single to Paul DeYoung and a one-out single to Justin Williams. But Rainey then retired the next two batters, including striking out Tommy Edmond on four pitches for the third out. Daniel Hudson looked good. You know, Hudson looked awful in spring training off having been really bad in 2020, but Hudson did a good job. First appearance for him since that season opening 6-5 win over the Braves at Nats Park all the way back last Tuesday, April 6. And Hudson throws a perfect eighth inning on Monday night, including a four-pitch strikeout of Yadier Molina for the third out. And then Brad Hand came on to close the game and it took a whole lot longer than it should have, though that's not Brad Hand's fault, but he ultimately does toss a scoreless a scoreless ninth inning. Did give up a two-out single, followed by a two-out walk, but Hand got squeezed big time by the home plate umpire, Dan Bellino. I mean, if you watch the game, you know this. Uh, this game should have ended much sooner than it ended up ending. Uh, Hand, though, does ultimately escape unscathed, has a couple of strikeouts, including a five-pitch strikeout of Paul DeYoung, for the second out. So good. Need more of this now. You know, Nats are only two and five, all right? They're not 7-0, oh, but good to see this from the Nationals in this game one at the Cardinals. Game two, Tuesday night, 745, Steven Strasburg versus Jack Flaherty. So we had a big trade for the Capitals on Monday, a big win for the Nationals on Monday night, and a big win for the Wizards on Monday night. The damn Washington Wizards. Yes, thank you, Stephen A. The Wizards do it again. They knock off the NBA-leading Utah Jazz. It was as predictable as the sun rising in the east 
on this Tuesday. The Wizards again beating the Jazz. This is what the Wizards do. I have talked about this. The Wizards do just enough to make you think that they're a halfway decent team. And the Wizards do just enough to let you know that they're better than what they've shown you for so much of the season. The Wizards do this every year. They're doing it again this season. And I do salute them because that was a heck of a win for them on Monday night at, again, the NBA-leading Utah Jazz. 125-121 ends up being the final. As the great Britney Spears once said, oops, I did it again. The Wizards beating the Jazz for a second time in less than a month, March 18th. That's all you have to go back to. The Wizards beat the then NBA leading Jazz at Capital One Arena 131-122. Now this game on Monday night, a bit different from that game back on March 18th. This game on Monday night, 14 lead changes, 7 ties, and it really was back and forth. The Wizards lost the first quarter 42-33. Yes, the Wizards gave up 42 first quarter points. Then responded though by winning the second quarter 37-23. The Wizards went on a 30-10 run that began in the third quarter and yielded a 19-point fourth quarter lead at 109-90. Yes, the Wizards were up 19 at the best team in the NBA in the fourth quarter on Monday night. And then what happened? The Wizards allowed that 19-point fourth quarter lead to get trimmed to two before pulling away for the win. This this was the Wizards season and the Wizards franchise in a nutshell this game uh, Monday night. Now, the Wizards, they actually played pretty good defense in that first win over the Jazz back on March 18th. Uh, the defense was not there on Monday night. Wiz did allow Utah to shoot 48.2% from the field, including 15 of 36 on threes. The Wizards allowed Donovan Mitchell to score 42 points, although the 42 points uh, did come on a bunch of shots. Mitchell only went 4 of 11 on threes and 10 of 21 on twos. But how about the former Wizard, Boyan Bogdanovich, you know? If only the Wizards had re-signed Boyan Bogdanovich and not given Otto Porter Jr. a max contract, but such is life. But anyway, Boyan, 6 of 10 on threes, 33 points on Monday night. So defense was not exactly stellar for the Wizards on Monday night. But you know what? The defense from the Jazz wasn't exactly stellar either. I mean, defense has been Utah's calling card for years. The Wizards on Monday night shoot 52.2%, including 9 of 19 on threes. Bradley Beal was supposed to be on a minutes restriction. So much for that. Ends up playing for 36 minutes, 33 seconds as a starter. 2 of 5 on threes, 34 points, 5 assists, versus no turnovers. Beal was really good offensively. Remember Beal and that initial win over the Jazz, 43 points, including 30 in the second half. Russell Westbrook, another triple-double on Monday night. And this was an efficient triple-double for Westbrook. 25 points, 14 assists versus just three turnovers and 14 rebounds. And Westbrook, when it came to his shooting, yeah, he went 0-2 on threes, but you can live with that. 8 of 13 on his twos, and he, for the most part, made his free throws. 9 of 11 was Russell Westbrook at the line. But Westbrook was clutch. He drained a big 20-foot pull-up jumper for a 121-115 Wizards lead with 31 seconds left in the fourth quarter. Westbrook is piling up these triple doubles like crazy. Do not become desensitized to this. This is really something else. 23 triple doubles now for Russell Westbrook this season. Single season and career franchise records when it comes to the Wizards. 23 triple doubles for Westbrook. Another one in the win over the Jazz on Monday night. Now, what was so funny about the Wizards in this game, Beal 34 points, Westbrook 25 points. The Wizards' other three starters, Denny Abdia, Rui Hachimura, and Alex Len, a combined seven points on three of 12 shooting. That was it. 
The offense was Beal and Westbrook in terms of the starters and then basically nothing else. But the offense also consisted of a lot from the bench. Wizards reserves came through big time on Monday night. Daniel Gafford, man, does he look good so far as a wizard. 15 points on six of eight shooting and four rebounds off the bench. Robin Lopez, how good, how efficient has he been in recent weeks? 10 points, five of five shooting off the bench. Davies Bertans, three of seven on threes, 10 points, four rebounds off the bench. Look, that's not what Bertans is here to provide. For $80 million, you need a lot more than that, but at least, you know, three of seven on threes, uh, you can work with that. Ish Smith was productive for the Wizards off the bench. Nine points on four of seven shooting. The Wizards came through. I mean, it is hysterical. The same team that loses so often to so many. The same team that, remember, got scorched in a loss to the Phoenix Suns this past Saturday night, right? We talked about that on Monday's podcast. The Wizards in a 134-106 loss at the Suns on Saturday night allowed Phoenix to finish that game with 36 assists versus three turnovers. Like, that's the kind of season it's been for the Wizards. But that same team now can say it has twice defeated the Utah Jazz in this NBA season. The same team that is atop the NBA standings the NBA leading Utah Jazz, which even with this loss on Monday night is 40 and 14 on the season. Heck, the Wizards with this win at Utah handed the Jazz just its third home loss this season. Utah was 24 and 2 at home going into that game on Monday night. And yet the Wizards do get the job done. And so the quest for 10th continues in the Eastern Conference. Remember, you have a play-in tournament this season for the NBA playoffs in each conference. So you don't need to get to 8th to make some version of a season beyond the regular season. You just need to get to 10th. And oh, by the way, speaking of that, also on Monday night was the Chicago Bulls losing at the Memphis Grizzlies, 101-90. So the Wiz now two games behind the Bulls for 10th in the East. You see, who thought you could get excited? You could be scoreboard watching for the Wizards as they try to catch the Bulls for 10th in the East. The Wiz at 20 and 33, the Bulls at 22 and 31. You can't beat postseason races in the Eastern Conference. This is how it is in the East. Sub 500, it don't matter. You're almost always in the mix. Wizard at the Sacramento Kings, Wednesday night at 10. All right, so before we call it a show on this Tuesday, before we call it a pod on this Tuesday, I did want to get into the very good news for the Georgetown Hoyas on Monday. In fact, can I get a little Rich Fotkin? Hoyas win! Hoyas win! Hoyas win! Hoyas win! Hoyas win! That's Rich. The Hoyas did win on Monday, and the Hoyas needed this because they had been reeling just a bit. The news on March 25th that the 6'11 Nigerian Kudus Wahab had entered the NCAA transfer portal. That was not good news. Then the bad news was made even worse when it came out on April 3rd that Wahab was transferring to Maryland. Well, the Hoyas struck back on Monday as 6'9 sophomore Eastern Kentucky transfer Trey King did announce that he's transferring to Georgetown. This is a big pickup for Patrick Ewing and the Hoyas. King this past season, over 28 games for Eastern Kentucky, had the following per-game averages, 14.9 points on 49.1% shooting, uh, 33.9% shooting on three. So, you know, he's not incapable from beyond the arc. I mean, that's not that good, but, you know, big man who can give you at least like 34% shooting on threes, that's not nothing. Uh, 6.2 rebounds, 1.5 steals, and 1.2 blocks. It's not just that. Trey King in an Eastern Kentucky game against a Big East team, Xavier, was a monster. 
So Eastern Kentucky lost 99-96 in overtime at Xavier back on November 30th. Trey King in that game, 3 of 5 on threes, 25 points, 13 rebounds, 4 steals, in 40 minutes as a starter. Yes, it's one game, but it shows you the guy can play against Big East competition as he obviously is going to need to do now that he's coming to Georgetown. King last season over 28 games for Eastern Kentucky did have a fouling problem. That is true. Uh, He fouled out of eight games. He had four fouls in seven other games. So he's got to work on that. He is not a perfect polished product, but he gives you size. He gives you an ability to both score and rebound. He can defend a bit, you know, so you get some rim protection with a guy like Trey King. This is someone who can come in, play for Georgetown right away, and I believe play well for the Hoyas right away. And I think it's telling too, Trey King chose Georgetown over some other prominent programs. King spoke to Rivals.com, said that he had been recruited the hardest by Georgetown, Virginia Tech, Marquette, and Xavier. So he ends up choosing the Hoyas over the Hokies, choosing the Hoyas over two other Big East teams in Marquette and Xavier. And King does have some local ties. He went to Hargrave Military Academy in Virginia. So look, with Georgetown, losing Wahab still stings. There's no doubt about that. It does look more and more like Georgetown will be without three of its better players from this past season, next season, in Shootier Belay, Jamarco Pickett, and Javon Blair. Belay was a graduate student. Pickett and Blair both were seniors. Uh, Because of the pandemic, the NCAA did rule that uh, all winter sport athletes gain an extra year of eligibility. So all three guys could come back if they wanted to. The scuttlebutt, shall we say right now, is that all three guys will not be coming back. But we'll see. Things can change. Mine's uh, can be altered. But even if all three of those guys are gonzo, you do have coming back your freshman point guard from this past season, Dante Harris, who remember won the Dave Gavitt trophy as the most outstanding player of the Big East tournament. And you have this very well-regarded recruiting class coming to Georgetown. The Hoyas per 24-7 sports have the number 12 recruiting class for 2021-2022 in the country. The class boasts the likes of Aminu Muhammad, a five-star recruit. Ryan Matumbo, the son of Dikembe, a big man coming to Georgetown. So you've got some talent here. And that in conjunction with the inspirational run that Georgetown made to win the Big East tournament, to make the NCAA tournament for the first time since 2015. I do believe there's hope for the Hoyas, the likes of which there hasn't been in a while. Getting smashed by Colorado in the first round of the NCAA tournament did hurt. Wahab transferring obviously hurts, but there is reason for hope with the Hoyas. And very good news on Monday with Trey King coming to Georgetown. All right, that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Subscribe, rate, review, spread the word about the podcast. Remember, we are together every weekday, five days a week, Monday through Friday, out by 5 a.m. This is not a once per week podcast, a twice or even three times per week podcast. This is every weekday waiting for you when you wake up. See, what better way is there to wake up than to a fresh installment of this podcast. I can't think of anything that would be better to wake up to than a brand spanking new installment of the Al Goldie podcast. Well, maybe I can think of a few things. Anyway, have a great rest of your Tuesday. I'll talk to you on Wednesday. I'm proud of your voice. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. 
Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.